everyone, and welcome to On Trial, the podcast where we explore how to build your practice, trial tactics, and what can make or break your case. We're your hosts. I'm John Risbold. I'm Matt Heimlich. And today, I'm just going to grill Matt about medical malpractice. Matt is the expert on this podcast in medical malpractice. And so today, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about five myths that come up in medical malpractice cases that I've seen and I know that you've seen pretty often and what we can do about them as plaintiff's lawyers. So before we do that, just tell us a little bit about your background and expertise in med mal particularly. Yeah. And medical malpractice and nursing home negligence is, is the vast majority of the cases that I'm handling. I've been doing nursing home negligence basically my entire legal career. Uh, I've had medical negligence cases, you know, sprinkled throughout my, my entire career, starting, you know, 10 years ago, continuing through the present day, you know, the, the medical and the nursing home systems that we have, I can only speak to what happens in Illinois, but it, a lot of patients, there's a lot of bad patient outcomes out there and people call because they have questions. I mean, that's how it usually starts off is someone got hurt, something happened, there was a bad outcome and either that person or their family, they want, they have a lot of questions. They want to know. And a lot of times they don't even know what happened. They just know the outcome. They don't know why it occurred. And they really just want someone with some expertise to go in, take a look, figure out a, what happened. And then B, was this something avoidable? Was this a result of negligence? Was this something that could have been prevented? And so, you know, one of the things that I do, and, you know, one of the things I really enjoy about the practice is really getting in the weeds, you know, getting all the information that we have, talking to experts, you know, figuring out if there's a case there. And if so, you know, what is the best case to bring that will kind of fully, you know, expose what happened, how it was preventable, and why this bad outcome was the result of negligence. Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense. That's something I'm sure that's keeping you very busy, given that medical error is the third leading cause of death in America now. I'm sure that you're doing a lot of that investigating. Yeah, there certainly is a lot of a lot of calls about things like this. And, and as an attorney, you know, I, I we're always looking to, you know, as an attorney, I know I've taken on cases that are a little outside the scope, you know, different kinds of cases and medical negligence cases that they're some of the most difficult ones to prove up ultimately and get full damages at trial. They're very complicated. They're not something to necessarily dabble into. So I would just suggest to other attorneys out there, you know, certainly take the time if you are able to, you know, learn the medicine, talk with experts, and maybe expand into that into your practice. But if that's not something that you have the time or the ability to do, which is totally understandable, you know, it's because it, it is a very time and resource consuming endeavor, you know, fully prosecuting medical malpractice case, you know, co-counsel with someone who is, and who can kind of take the wheel or refer the case to someone who's more of a specialist who has that experience, who has that, you know, wealth of knowledge and, you know, access to experts, and we'll be able to kind of take the ball and run with it. You know, a lot of the people that you and I read about and the books we read, you know, the rallies of the world, and a lot of the folks in California have that mindset of, I'm going to co-counsel with three other firms and four other lawyers and everything else. And it doesn't seem to be something that's as common here in Chicago or in the Midwest, but I think it's a huge missed opportunity. I think you're absolutely right. If you've got a case that is incredibly complicated or resource consuming co-counseling like that can be a great way to learn, but also a great outcome for your clients because these investigations 
they take time, they take money, they take a lot of, of not just financial resources, but knowledge and skill and time, which kind of brings us to the first myth I want to talk to you about today, which is, you know, we get a lot of calls and in Illinois, we have a two-year statute of limitations, and then there's also a medical malpractice statute of repose, but, you know, I get calls that are, hey, I've got, you know, two months until my statute of limitations runs. Why isn't that enough time to investigate my medical malpractice case and get it on file and do everything you need to do? I'm definitely going to answer that. Before I, I get, I think you make an excellent point about the co-counsel and referrals. I, I think that that is a huge, like you said, a missed opportunity. Much like doctors, lawyers specialize and sub-specialize and sub-sub-specialize. I mean, there's there's a, there's a particular doctor I know in the Chicago area who's not only a spine surgeon, he is a cervical spine surgeon only. He doesn't do thoracic, he doesn't do lumbar, he just does cervical spine procedures. And similarly, lawyers, especially the ones who are kind of at the top of the profession, a lot of times subspecialize into, you know, very specific niches. You know, there are lawyers like we, a friend of the pod, Chris, remind me of his name. I'm driving Norman, <laughs> Norman birth, birth injury case specialist. You know, if you have a hypoxia case, if you have, you know, something, something along those lines, he'd be a person to talk to. You know, there are other people who specialize in different areas, especially within the medicine and medical negligence cases who, or have tried cases to verdict about and, and are experts on a particular issue because of their experience. And, and there's definitely an opportunity there, you know, to gain some of that knowledge, to work with someone like that, and ultimately going to benefit yourself and benefit your client. No doubt about it. So then Our, so get, bring, get, us back, bring us get, back to the statute of limitations, though. I do want to ask you, why, why isn't that enough time? You're, you know, you're handling a lot of these cases. I'm sure you're getting calls where the clock is running and it's getting towards the end there. Why isn't that enough time? Yeah. M- medical negligence cases, so much work is involved before we even get the case on file. You know, this isn't like an auto or even a truck case where you can just get the case on file and sort out the details later a ton of work needs to be done beforehand. And the general rule that we have is we need to have at least six months in the statute to even take a look. And that's pretty common throughout the practice. You know, the, the statute of limitations is two years from the date of the, in, the injury or accident. So, I mean, bottom line, if you believe or have a suspicion that there is negligence as a result of a medical procedure in particular, talk to a lawyer right away. It's a lengthy process. Just getting the records, the bills, the imaging together takes months. There's no perfect way to do it. The complications always arise when we're trying to get these, whether it be overbilling for records, whether it be, you know, I can't find the images, you need to subpoena them from somewhere else. Those, it takes several months in general to get everything together. After all that, you may need to have one, two, three, maybe more experts review the case for merit, link everything up in a nice causal bow before you can even get the case on file. I I have a case that it's actually up for the first time next week. I have four expert reports on the case, you know, and, and that's what needed to happen for this case. You know, every case isn't like that. Sometimes you just need one, but you're going to need at least one. I mean, I've seen four five, sometimes more, depending on what kind of defendants you have. It's not something that can be done quickly. And if it's done quickly, it's certainly not going to be done well. Um, And and these reports, getting an expert report on file with your complaint, it is 
it's not optional. It is absolutely necessary, required under the law. And, you know, a lot of these defense attorneys, if your report isn't good enough, it's going to be subject to all kinds of motion practice. And then your, your, your case is just going to be languishing. You're going to be fighting off motions unnecessarily. Whereas if you had the time, you know, if you did the work beforehand, everything would be done. You get the case on file, you move into discovery. And not only that, when you do move into discovery, you're going to have a roadmap for how this is going to work. You know, you, you've had your experts take a look at everything. You know where the problem areas are for the defendants. And your discovery is going to be more an exposure of what the problems are than necessarily finding out new information. Yeah, if you're an injured person or you're the family of somebody who has been you know, wrongfully killed, time is not your friend. Time is not on your side. And so I, you know, I agree with you. This, this is one that we deal with often in our practice. And to your point, like if it is a truck crash, thankfully I can get that on file quickly and figure it out. It's a large commercial vehicle. You know, I handle a lot of those and it's, it's something we can get on file, but with a, a nursing home negligence or a medical negligence, especially just getting records, getting records can take forever these days. It's just become a very, very difficult task getting them timely. So yeah, the sooner, the better. The other one that I've run into in the you know limited amount of medical negligence that I've done by comparison to you, I get calls like, well, the doctor told me that they made a mistake. They told me they screwed something up. So I definitely have a really great case. Would you take my case? Just, you know, the doctor told me that they made a mistake. What do you think? Well, I mean, what that is, is that that's the start of the inquiry. That, that's by no means the end of it. First, we need to figure out what kind of mistake it was. Was this a rare mistake, something that absolutely should not have happened? You know, if so, that sounds like a great case to me too. More likely, is this a known complication and potential risk of the procedure in particular, if it is a, a surgical procedure or something like that? Or, and was it consented for? You know, was there an informed consent done? What was the plaintiff provided with? you know, information about, okay, here's what, here's the procedure. Here's what it involves. Here's what the potential risks are. Here's what the potential benefits are. You know, that's something that you would need to know. Again, that doesn't stop the inquiry either, but if it's a, a known risk of the procedure, that's something that we need to know. Alternatively, is this a, a never event that interestingly enough, Medicare has a list of events that are considered quote unquote, never events, meaning things that just by their nature should not happen at a hospital. That includes hospital falls. That includes bed sores over a stage two. And as a result, Medicare will not pay for services for the injured person as a result of a never event occurring at a hospital. You know, so this is something that you need to be aware of as well. If it is a known risk of procedure, and again, these are the, these are the most common case calls that we get. You know, I went in for a surgery, they severed something they shouldn't have, you know, what so, you know, I definitely have a case. That's kind of the thought process of the, of, of the injured person or the family. And, and so what you need to figure out is what steps were taken to prevent this known risk. Okay. We all agree that this was a known risk. Therefore, the doctor should have done things to prevent this. What was done to prevent it? That's something that needs to be investigated. You know, how did the mistake occur? Was this, you know, some sort of robotic assisted surgery? Was it, you know, the did the person... You know, what, what can you figure out from the operative report? What can you figure out from any intraoperative imaging? 
you know, what can you figure out from as you know, surgical pathologies, you know, a bunch of different sources of information. So you can figure out how the mistake occurred. And then for me, this is kind of the most important part was, was the mistake timely recognized? You know, mistakes can and do happen in the medical setting. You know, sometimes, you know, they give the wrong drug. Sometimes they cut something they shouldn't have. You know, these things can and do happen, but was it timely recognized? And then did they take reasonable steps to try to fix it? You know, if they gave someone the wrong drug and then they gave, you know, like they gave someone Coumadin and then they gave them the antidote for Coumadin, you know, no, really it's, it's almost a no harm, no foul situation because they saw a mistake, recognized it, fixed it before it become a real problem or, or in a surgical procedure, you know, they severed something. Did they recognize it? Did they try to fix it? Uh, were they able to, you know, able to actually fix it or did they make a reasonable attempt to do so? You know, if that was the case, that's going to be a tough case to pursue. I mean, that's not going to be something that you're likely going to win on. So that's all things that need to be explored, you know, before you end up taking the case on. And then the other major issue is, you know, after the negligence, proximate cause. Did the mistake cause the complained up injury? How do we talk about that? How do we investigate that? And, and this is one of those things where, you know, the jury instructions are on our side here. You know, we have the long form proximate cause instruction. It doesn't need to be the last cause. It doesn't need to be the nearest cause. It needs to be a proximate cause of the injury complained of. So, you know, that's, that's something that we, that you talk about, you know, more at trial, but when it comes to getting, investigating it and and getting your report on file and getting the case moving forward, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be, you know, this event happened, which directly led to this other event, it can be, you know, there can be intervening steps. There can be intervening issues. Like for example, this person fell at the hospital, they broke their hip, they became kind of debilitated, developed a pneumonia and died. You know, did the fall necessarily cause the pneumonia? No, but was it a, what did it approximately cause the pneumonia? Sure. Because it left the person more debilitated, people more debilitated, more susceptible to pneumonias. And in that way, you can make that case and link everything up, medically speaking. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to your point a moment ago, I think timely recognition is something that people often overlook. Like, yes, the doctor made a mistake, but they recognized the mistake immediately and corrected it. So you don't necessarily have damages. And without damages, especially, you know, the type that are permanent or life altering or catastrophic, like you would see in a medical negligence, in most medical negligence cases, without damages, we don't have anything we can pursue. So yeah, it's not enough that there's a mistake. And, and it's true, even if they, they don't end up being able to fix it. I mean, I, I'm thinking of one of the more tragic cases that I reviewed recently, what was an elderly woman who went in for a colonoscopy and they perforated her bowel during the, the colonoscopy she had a horrible bleeding event that occurred afterwards and ended up dying. And it was a horrible thing. And it's certainly not, you know, it, it's sure it's on the, the very rare end of the spectrum for risk of the procedure. It's certainly not a, a nor the perforation of the bowel certainly is something that people see, but usually doesn't result in, in someone dying. Um, but, you know, I had an expert take a look at it and the expert said, you know what, I, these things do happen during the procedure. And it, it appears the surgeon did everything reasonable that, you know, that they reasonably could do to try to fix the problem. It just didn't work for this particular patient. 
you know, and that's, and, the, and that's a horrible thing, you know, but that's the, that's the real, you know, the people who, you know, surgeons who practice in this area, if that's what they're telling you, you know, that then you have to, you have to believe it. You have to rely on it because we need expert support, you know, for everything that we, you know, allege against the doctor in that case, in a case. So if the expert's not on board, you know, if they're telling you that everything that could have been done was, you know, was reasonably done, you know, then that's something that you, you know, you can't really pursue. Yeah. Right. Which kind of brings me to the third thing I want to talk to you about, which is, you know, if, if somebody comes to you and says, look, I had a really bad outcome. I had this bad outcome from X procedure, the procedure failed. Uh, I, you know, whatever it might be. I had somebody call the other day and said that they had a surgery to remove their pancreas or their gallbladder rather surgery to remove their gallbladder, but the gallbladder wasn't supposed to be removed. And I said, well, what is, what has happened since? Well, nothing. I just don't have a gallbladder now. We don't need a gallbladder. Your body can function perfectly fine without it. So if you don't have any actual consequences of the bad outcome, does that mean you still have a great med mal case? No, I mean, we, we have to prove every, everything, and especially in a medical case, you need to prove it, you know, as, as to a, as high a degree of certainty as possible. So bad outcomes, they can happen. They do happen. They are not always necessarily the result of negligence. You know, we need to prove that a violation of the standard care caused the bad outcome just because a bad outcome occurred, you know, we can't just jump to the conclusion that there was negligence. You can't skip that step. You know, that's why we need to have a, a thorough investigation, find out as much information pre-suit as possible so we can determine whether or not the negligence caused, you know, the bad outcome. And when we're doing that, you know, sometimes the negligence isn't really apparent on the surface. You know, sometimes you need to get a little bit deeper, you know, and, and especially when you get into suit, there are ways to explore the negligence to come up with theories that are a little, you know, less, you know, the surgeon cut, you know, a quarter millimeter to the left of where they should have, you know, because that's a tough case. You know, you want to get creative with your discovery. You want to, you know, get audit trails and reports to see that the records that were given to you, you know, were the records that were created, you know, contemporaneously with the procedure. You know, because with EMRs in particular, there should be a trail. They're required to under law. And, you know, you'll there's a lot of cases out there where the records will get either edited, modified, changed completely. You'll find out that all kinds of people had eyes on these records, that it was started by one person and completed by another. You know, it's very, it's something that's very important. And it's something that, you know, supposedly under the law is part of the medical record, but uh, getting those out of hospitals, nursing homes, any medical provider pre-suit is next to impossible. And it's, it's very hard during litigation, even with, you know, for example, the standing order of Cook County saying that they are to be produced, you know, in the normal course of litigation. Um, that rarely, if ever happens, this usually requires discovery requests and usually motion practice on top of it. But it is certainly worth getting. Hopefully one day this will become a routine part of discovery, but we're not there yet. The other thing, again, and you got to think a little bit outside the box sometimes, you know, if it's a surgical procedure, you know, and it was performed at seven at night, you know, what was the surgeon doing the rest of the day? Did he have four other procedures scheduled? 
was it, had he been in the operating room since 7 a.m.? You know, what, what was his, what was his schedule like after that? Did he have somewhere to go somewhere to be, you know, so he's rushing. I mean, though it, it may not initially seem relevant, but again, you're never going to know until you ask and you may find out something, you know, very useful in proving up your case. Another issue that is important as well are if a person comes to the hospital or a nursing home, you know, are they adequately staffed to meet the needs of that patient? You know, do they have, you know, consults available if you're in a hospital to deal with the particular medical issue? You know, if so, great. If not, you know, maybe they should be at a different hospital. Maybe they should be transferred somewhere that can actually take care of them as opposed to having them linger and stay at the, the hospital until the consultant, you know, rounds at that facility three days later, you know, and same thing with, with nursing homes, you know, are they, if they accept a person who has complex medical issues, you know, for a skilled nursing facility, you know, they have accepted that they're going to meet his needs and they need to be staffed appropriately. You know, they can't say, well, this person had very complex medical issues. Like, well, that that's fine, but you chose to admit him to your facility. And when you do that, you are implying that you're taking on this person's needs because you knew them when, when they walked in the door or when they came in the door. So, you know, try to figure out that as well. There are also some institutional negligence cases. That, that is my preferred case to make against any hospital or nursing home. You know, we're trying to make things systemic. We're trying to take the focus off the individual care providers and onto, you know, the corporate nature of the hospital or the nursing home and how they're affecting the care that's being provided to the individual people there. You know, and, and if you can build a case around, you know, failure to follow a, a hospital's procedures, failure to follow JCO standards, you know, failure to staff, you know, those kinds of big institutional things, A, they take the focus off the hosp the, the individual care providers, which is good for us for a variety of reasons. You know, people tend to like nurses, people tend to like doctors. Right. You know, mm -hmm. we want to make the case about the failures in care, not, you know, the personalities of the people involved. And same with the, and also question whether or not there were adequate procedures in place. You know, should there have been a procedure for the issue facing your client and there wasn't, you know, that could be another route to go. So, so, you know, we, we got to get creative with discovery. We got to get a little creative with our theories. And, you know, ultimately what we're trying to do is take the focus off of the doctors and nurses who are doing the hands-on care and onto the corporate nature of the hospital or nursing home and how they, you know, maybe cut in corners you know, to save some money and provide, you know, just enough patient care, you know, while, while trying to put as much in their pockets as possible. Yeah. It's a strong argument to focus on the business of medicine versus the practice of medicine, especially as you see more and more of these practice groups consolidate and merge and, you know, have private equity owning their debt and funding them through debt purchases and those sorts of structures that should otherwise be illegal, but aren't. You know, focusing on that as opposed to everybody loves their doctor, but everybody hates going to the hospital. Everybody loves the, the nurse, but hates having to wait in the waiting room. I mean, that's the difference between the practice and the business, right? The other thing that you said that is really important too, I agree with you, is, is getting scheduling. Was the doctor playing 18 holes in the morning and then doing 10 surgeries at night, right? What, what are they doing? Where are they at? Uh, phone records can help with that. You know, we have a, a large birth injury case right now, and a lot of the institutional negligence 
a lot of the failure of the hospital was just that the doctor and the hospital and hospital staff did not communicate well throughout the night during labor and did not communicate well or frequently. And we have phone records to show it. So stuff like that's very, very helpful. Even if though you have the setup, even if you have the institutional negligence and you have the framing right and you have proximate cause, you know, every personal injury case I was always taught is a three-legged stool. You have liability, damages, and is there a place for us to recover money from? And you would think logically that large nursing home facilities or large hospital systems, they're carrying huge insurance policies, right? Unfortunately, that's almost never the case. Some of the large hospital systems, yes. But if you are, especially I can speak for the Chicago area, looking at a standalone hospital, you need to figure that out as soon as possible. You know, is this, there are hospitals in the Chicago area that don't have insurance coverage. One of the first verdicts, actually it was my first verdict that I got was against a hospital that had zero insurance and we had to collect it out of the operating fund. And they told us if we would have collected the full amount of the verdict, we would shut down the hospital. And that's, you know, that's not what we're in the business of doing. We're in the business of trying to recover for our clients. We're not in the business of, of shutting down a community hospital. So we, you know, compromised with them and, and got the case resolved post-verdict. But, you know, it's it's shocking that there are situations like that out there where that has to be done. This is particularly egregious in the nursing home arena. Yeah. There are companies that own dozens of nursing homes in Chicago, Illinois, and elsewhere, and their insurance limits are unbelievably paltry and eroding, meaning that every dollar they spend defending the case comes off of the coverage available to the facility. So like you said, one of my first questions when I'm pursuing a new nursing home case is, you know, what kind of insurance do we have? I, I'm, I'm going to file it, you know, and I'm going to not really do anything until I figure out, you know, they assign it to counsel. And my first question to counsel is going to be, what kind of coverage is this? You know, what, what, what are the, you know, per claim and the aggregate? Because that's a whole nother issue is, you know, oh. is this a facility that gets sued, you know, three to, out of five days a week, you know, and what's left on the aggregate? Because there are a lot of insurance. I, I'm dealing with a couple nursing home cases right now that we're talking about in a couple of weeks, $250,000 per claim eroding policy, 750 annual aggregate. Unbelievably low. Yeah. Unbelievably low, but there are no rules. They can use whatever insurance they want to. So you got to find out the limits as soon as possible. And then once you do, and especially if you have an excess case, you know, you want to expose that inherent conflict right away. You know, you want to, when a defense attorney by doing work on behalf of their client is eroding their client's insurance coverage and protection, that's a conflict. That, that is an inherent conflict and that needs to be pointed out. And then, you know, like John, you've talked about on auto cases, you know, in a bad faith context, you want to drive a wedge between the insurer and the insured, you know, and so you want to try to create enough leverage where you can resolve, at least give them the opportunity to resolve the case within the policy limits without eroding the limits too much. I mean, it's a tricky dance and, and it's something that you need to be aware of because, you know, the, you don't want to be the guy who litigates a case for two years. You know, you spend money on experts, 
your experts get deposed and all of a sudden you get a letter, you know, from defense counsel saying, oh, by the way, the aggregate is almost gone. You know, I, we have, you know, 50,000 left, you know, you should probably take it before we take this case to trial. And then there's nothing. Uh, because then that creates a whole host of problems. You know, does the licensee of the nursing home have any assets? Probably not. Does a different company likely own the building? Absolutely. Do they have any liability because of the way this is structured? Probably not. So th- there's a and there's other approaches that you can take to rope in asset or other companies like a management company, you know, or, or there's different ways to pursue that kind of a more complicated conversation for a different episode. But there are ways to to navigate that, but that's something you want to know right away. It really is because otherwise, you know, you you may be doing yourself and your client a huge disservice by by litigating a case, and before you figure out, you know, there's there's no light at the end of this tunnel. Yeah, absolutely. I think too with the aggregate issues, it's something to just stay on top of through the pendency of litigation because you might file suit and you might be the first one that filed suit on that particular policy period. So you think that you have adequate coverage, you litigate, and it's a no offer, no offer, no offer. You litigate, but five people file suit after you and resolve all their cases. And now the policy is effectively gone. So if you're not updating discovery, um, you're not going to know that. And just if there's any of our defense brethren listening to this at all, don't be the attorney who hides aggregate issues and then you know, no offers a case and then says, well, here you go, take it or leave it. Just don't be that person. Karma's going to get you. So just be a better, be a better lawyer and a better person than doing something like that and hide the ball. With these medical negligence cases, we talked about earlier, you have to have an expert, sometimes more than one, sometimes many. But in order to get into court, to cross the threshold, you have to have an expert that signs on and says, yes, there is medical negligence. And yes, that medical negligence is the proximate cause of the plaintiff's injuries. So the mere fact that I found an expert who's going to write that report and sign that affidavit means that I'm going to win this medical negligence case, right? This is a winner because my expert says so. What do you think of that common refrain that we get from people? If only it were true, that that would be nice. I mean, the statistically speaking, even in Cook County, which is a about as plaintiff-friendly a jurisdiction as there is, uh, medical negligence cases have approximately a 20% success rate for plaintiffs. So that means you got your all your expert reports, the case is on file, you've taken the case to trial, 20% chance for the plaintiff to win. Again, even in Cook County, obviously it's probably worse elsewhere. These are tough cases. You know, these are tough cases at every aspect of it. You know, standard of care, that's a nebulous concept to a lot of people. It's not like there's an agreed upon written standard for every procedure that everyone agrees on, you know, every single step. So th- this, these are tough cases at, at every step, proximate cause issues like we were talking about earlier, you know, especially you're dealing with someone who's medically complex, who has multiple medical conditions going on simultaneously. There are lots of potential outs if the case isn't, you know, if you don't have an airtight case or don't make it as airtight as you can. So how do we combat this? What can we do to try to make those cases a little bit more airtight? Number one, we don't want to make the negligence too medical. You know, like I said, we don't want to go in there and say, well, this person should have cut four millimeters to the left than they did. 
you know, you want to make it a little more common sense. You want to make it a little more available to the lay person, you know? So instead of saying that, maybe you want to say, you know, we all agree that you got to look before you cut, you know, you need to go. So maybe that is your case as opposed to, you know, four millimeters to the left and this person would have been fine. You know, look before you cut is a common sense thing, you know, yeah. and I, and juries can wrap their minds around that. And, and you know, I, I think that's one way to drive your point home without getting too in the weeds on the medicine. Similarly, you don't want to make your medical negligence case a battle of the experts. We want to make these things clear and simple. And although we have to have an expert, we want we don't want it to be relying solely on the expert to take our case over the finish line. You know, we need to prove it from start to finish. You know, we, we need to have the jury thinking by the end of opening that, oh, you know, how this is so obvious. This is so obvious. You know, how could they how could they have missed this? How could they have screwed up in the way that they did? You know, because if you're getting next, if you're waiting to tie everything up with your experts and sometimes you, you have to in certain ways, but the foundation needs to be laid early on and needs to be repeated throughout so that, you know, it's not the, the entire case is not, you know, relying on the credibility of your experts versus the credibility of their experts. And then also, and this is true for every case, certainly not. I just feel like it's a little more important in a medical case. You know, getting rid of biased jurors is so important. And, and in particular on a medical case, because I think the jury instructions are on our side. You know, I think the jury instructions are, you know, plaintiff friendly to a certain extent because you know, we have the long form proximate cause instruction, which means, you know, it doesn't need to be the last or nearest, but a cause of the injury. You know, I, I think that that it's all there. And if you can find a way to get rid of the jurors who, who are just, you know, are uncomfortable sitting in judgment on a doctor or a nurse or have issues with medical negligence cases for one reason or another, you know, or their family works in healthcare, or, you know, whatever the reason is. You know, you want to try to identify these jurors and get rid of them because I, if the you can find a jury, and you have a and you have a good case, and that that jury is going to adhere to the law as it's written in the jury instructions as they're written, you know, I feel like you're going to do yourself well and and set yourself up for success. And then ultimately, again, this is just, I again, I feel like a little more important in medical cases than others, uh, but it's true in every case. Simplify, simplify your case. We want to make the case as simple as possible. We want to make the case as common sense and understandable as possible. You know, the more we rely on medical terms, the more we rely on nuance, that that all plays into the defense. We want to break things down and explain things in a way that's easy to understand and, you know, tells the jury a story that leads to the inevitable conclusion that your client has been harmed by the way of negligence and deserves to be compensated. I had a trial consultant tell me that the most important thing that I can do to make myself a better trial lawyer is to kiss, right? Keep it simple, stupid. If you are making your cases complicated and overly complicated and muddying the water, you're doing the defense's job for them because that's a lot of what they do, right? Is poke holes and muddy the water and sort of try to make things more complicated than they actually are. Yeah, absolutely. At the last nursing home case I tried, the defendant tried to cross-examine our expert, our medical expert on the medicine. Yeah. And the jury was, 
they, they told, we talked to the jury afterwards and they were like, that was very, very seemed cool. It seemed like you guys knew a lot of stuff. And they said, did it have any impact on your decision? None whatsoever. We didn't really understand what was going on. Yeah. Right. So right. again, making yourself feel smart or trying to convince yourself that, you know, you are an expert or you're, it's, it's not going to help your case and be to the benefit of your client. Like you said, keep it simple, keep it simple. And when you think it's not, you know, you think it's too simple, try again, try again, make it, make it even more simple and, you know, make it as straight of a line as you can from, you know, from breach to approximate cause to damages. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you walking me through the, what I would consider the five biggest med mal myths that I've heard or encountered in my practice and shining a light on this, this niche area that is very specialized and nuanced and incredibly difficult. I appreciate it. Before we wrap up today, you got to give everybody your 30 second trial tip. You know, the one thing that, that we think that we're doing to make our cases stronger and our trials better in 30 seconds, let me know what's your trial tip. Well, kind of keeping with the theme I was just harping on, my tip is to limit the issues for the jury at trial. They have such a hard job. They have so much to do. They need to pay attention to all the facts. They need to weigh the credibility of the witnesses. You know, they need to make determinations on, you know, breach. And then they need to figure out how much, you know, to award the client in damages, presuming that they're with you. Limit the issues if you can. If you can knock one of one or maybe more than one of those issues that they need to decide out before trial, you're doing yourself and your client a favor. You know, if on an auto case, you can get a summary judgment, you know, on, on liability. Wonderful. You know, if they don't have, if they don't have a doctor that's refuting your medical testimony, you know, you can see if you can try to knock that out too, and take that out of the jury's hands. So it's like, okay, we have an accident. You know, everyone agrees that, that you know, there's, there's no refuting, you know, this medical testimony, you know, see what you can do to make your case simpler and present it to the jury in a way that has them do less. They have enough to do. Don't make them do any more than they have to. Absolutely. And hand in hand with that, my 30 second trial tip is become intimately familiar with the jury instructions, make the jury instructions a go-to resource for you, construct your cases from the get-go, your complaints, your discovery, your depositions, based on what you expect the jury instructions will look like, become very familiar with the comments that are attached to the jury instructions, especially in Illinois, the pattern jury instructions we have, like you said, are very friendly to injured people because they're simple, they're straightforward, and they explain the law to the jurors in a way that is easy to understand and easy to apply. You just have to show them how to apply it. And if you know the jury instructions and you're the most prepared person in the room when it comes to that part of the case, your closing argument is easier. Your opening is easier. Your motions and eliminate are easier. Every single piece of it comes much easier when you know these instructions inside and out. And so that, that for me is something I think is paramount. I couldn't agree more. I was told when I was a young attorney, look at the jury instructions, you know, very beginning of the case, look at the applicable jury instructions. And of course, you know, I didn't really do that and I should have, it was a mistake. I know them now, but I was something I wish I had really taken the effort to make an effort to know, you know, when I was a younger attorney, it would have been very helpful. Yeah. 
Well, that's our episode for today. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or troll us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Ontrow Podcast. Please also rate, review, leave us your feedback on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast and help us get the word out so that we can learn more from great trial lawyers. And until next time, we'll see you on trial.